I'd like to thank you all again for the opportunity uh, to be up here and preach the Word of God. It's an honor, and uh, it's a privilege to be able to serve in this way, and it just, uh, just humbles me to be able to do it. So thank you again. have an announcement here I'd like to read that came from uh, Lynn Miracle. She wanted this read to the church after the service for Mary Welch this week. I'd like to read this from you. The, the email was dated sat, uh, Saturday, February 2nd. The family writes this, We would like to thank the Ferris Center Church for all you did yesterday to make the family and friends of mom feel so well cared for. The service was beautiful. We thank Josh for his care and ministry to us through the last part of mom's journey. We will never forget it. Thank you to those who helped make the memorial luncheon so lovely. All that wonderful food, how did you make it all come together? Prayer and hard work. We thank the kitchen staff and the support crew. We thank our cousins Andrea, Victor, and Luann for all the added support. Ferris was very important to mom and such a huge part of her life. She loved this church and its people. Blessings to you and God be with you till we meet again. She asked that this be shared this morning with you. We also put it out there on the Facebook group. So uh, very, very nice words from the family of Mary. And we had a very nice service. And, and thank you, each one of you that contributed or helped in, in any way. Uh, despite the weather and with the delay, uh, we, we did have a nice day. And everything came together so well and honorable, I believe, for Mary. So thank you, everyone. Going to get going here. Welcome to the beginning of a new journey together through the book of Daniel. Settle in. We'll be, Lord willing, uh, talking through approximately a chapter a week. A chapter a week of this 12-chapter Old Testament book. I said this a couple weeks ago when I announced that this series was on the way. The book of Daniel really does have a little bit of everything in it. There's plenty of action, drama, mystery, I've been told there's a diet plan as well. Maybe that's something else. I don't know. <laughs> there's some comedic moments, and there's even moments that we find have been retold or replaced in those little Bible highlight books for kids. There's even some, uh, you might say, children's stories. It also contains a fair amount of biblical prophecy in the form of visions. Our lead character, Daniel, is given the gift of understanding dreams and visions. And I wish I had a phone number I could call him because I've got some doozies. Dreams, yeah, I know. Preacher starts talking about visions, you might want <clears throat> to press him for a little bit more info. But you might call Daniel a visionary, right? It's been some time since we've approached a Bible book from start to finish, and I'm not sure that I've crossed that bridge at Ferris with a book from the Old Testament. And with a chapter of text a week, there's no way we're going to be able to talk through every detail. Some of you might start skipping some Sundays if we start that, right? But I encourage you, friends, if you know where we are together with our time in the Word, take it back home with you from week to week. Start where we leave off. Read ahead in your Bibles. Uh, jump to the next chapter. This will prepare your hearts. It will prepare your minds for the following Sunday. I encourage you to do that. Each week, as we did this morning, and I'd like to hopefully continue to do this, we'll have a highlight from the text. Uh, some chapters might prove more difficult than others. This morning, our focus is Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 to 14. 
That's our focus, but we're going to be talking about the whole chapter. Before we jump into this text and the context of what's happening in the chapter around it, I have another one of my fairest famous beginning of sermon questions to ask you. Uh, have you ever found yourself in a difficult social situation with somebody? Never, right? Can't happen. Not in the church. We're Christians. Maybe it's a situation brought on by change. Uh, think with me on this. Maybe you've got a coworker that's been uh, just recently driving you crazy, for example. Let's say you go into work, you're just there to do your job, but if you had just a little bit more say in what was going on at that place, those people wouldn't be working anywhere near you. They might be getting their pink slip that day. Maybe you've had a recent struggle with a coworker. Maybe it's a struggle with a boss. Maybe you've got a, a new manager. He's just arrived at work, and he's nothing like your old manager. It's difficult for you to make that adjustment. I've actually been in that situation before. Meet the new boss, not the same at all as the old boss. It can be tough. Or maybe you're experiencing some kind of friction in a, in a friendship. You're having some issues with a buddy. You're struggling with somebody's follow-through, maybe. It seems like uh, somebody will say one thing and do another. Uh, friends can be like that, or they can seem to be that way. Or you've got a friend of yours that's maybe embarrassed you socially. You just haven't been able to confront your friend, but you want to before your friend becomes your enemy. This happens. People change. Maybe you're struggling with a friendship or with a spouse. Maybe you've uh, got an old flame that's burned for years, but recently it's resembled more of a dying charcoal pit than a, after a rainstorm than a bonfire that's burning brightly. There, you felt a loss of commitment somewhere, uh, whether someone hasn't been giving you time or showing you affection or the respect that you'd like in that partnership. Maybe this lukewarm relationship's been going on for a couple weeks or months or even years. You miss the connection you had with that person early on. Can you relate to any of these social scenarios at all? this morning. Sometimes when we get into these situations, we wonder in a relationship, uh, can we continue to stand where we are? Should we get moving on? But sometimes, friends, the best move we can make in, in times of uh, difficult relationships is to not be concerned as much with where we're going, but to remember where we already stand. That is, we still stand under God. Amen. This working relationship or friendship or marriage, all these difficulties we may experience might make us feel at times as though we're on shaky ground. But no matter how we respond to these circumstances, we can be confident in the call to give glory to God. I can't give you quick fixes to these problems today. But I can tell you there's nowhere you can go in this life, no relationship you can experience, and no, to quote David Bowie, ch-ch-ch-changes you can't endure. I didn't sing it. I didn't sing it. Thank God. I haven't been working on my Bowie, but I'll start. There's nothing you can't endure where you aren't under the eye of God, Psalm 139. Even those teen years, even when you lose your boyfriend, you lose your best friend at age 15, and you'll never get over it. Your life will just never be the same. You'll never recover. And that can be tough. I don't mean to make fun. But sometimes when people are situations are difficult, we wonder where God is, right? We wonder where God is. But even and especially in these cases, God hasn't gone anywhere. He hasn't gone anywhere. Daniel 
whose name means God is my judge, could have certainly thought there was distance between his circumstances, between where he was standing and the presence of God. You know, you think you might have had difficulty with a changing relationship or with a work environment. Just imagine everything you've ever known, everything, everything in your life, not just a boss or a buddy, everything, every relationship and every connection your entire life being taken away from you, new identity thrown upon you, and there's nothing you can do about it. This is worse than identity theft on the internet. Imagine having your own place of residence, your very home, the place you live has been conquered, ransacked by the king of a foreign country. You're being bound, you're being put in captivity, taken to a foreign land where you're told you're going to be directly under the service of a new king. Very culture that you're born in and raised in, they're going to try to strip it away from you. Maybe even where you came from, you were considered royalty. Now you were going to serve royalty. Bit of a difference there. Plus, in addition to all of this, you were going to have to learn a new way of reading and, and writing, a whole new way of speaking. You couldn't even use the name given to you at birth anymore. Do you think this would be tough? Do you think this could create a difficult uh, social situation for you? Well, this is exactly the situation. Daniel, this is how we meet Daniel at the beginning of the book named after him. The first six verses of the chapter describe the action. Exit Judah and the land of the people of God. Of course, the kingdom has been divided by this point. Leaving the Jews, leaving the Israelites, enter Babylon, a foreign country made up of a group of people, the Babylonians or Chaldeans. They were so pagan, they didn't even eat in a way that was honorable to your God. Even that's changing. Imagine how they handled all the other pleasures. And yet, although this was Daniel's predicament, what's amazing to me is the Bible doesn't say anything about his being the least bit shaken by these circumstances. The Bible reads like even an outsider could tell that Daniel and the three other uh, young men that are with him in the text, specifically named, are they're, they're noble, they're competent, they're skilled, they're educated, verses 3 and 4. They're not even of adult age, but they're confident. They're confident young people. In Daniel's case, his confidence came from the God above him, and it showed. It showed. But here's a little bit more context surrounding these captives being taken to this new land. I think it's going to help us understand why the king, the king specifically asks for these young people, specifically when he takes over the land. In Daniel 1, verse 4, if you've got your Bibles open, you can be kind of skimming these verses with me. We're going to jump into the highlight, but these verses leading up to it are important. At one time, at this time, excuse me, one commentator notes, the nation of Babylon, it was considered the intellectual center of Western Asia. The Chaldean people of Babylon were well known for being smart. Their great knowledge they were brilliant in astronomy. They had a reputation for astrology. By the time of Christ's birth, hundreds of years later, it's no wonder that wise men came from the east, came from this area. You see, they'd been following a star which would lead them to the king of the Jews in Matthew 2, verse 2. Remember that? We hear that text a lot. Well, three wise men of Asia had spent hundreds and hundreds of years studying the night skies when God gave them something really worth following to Bethlehem. Just as an aside, that's not our main focus this morning. I just wanted to throw that out there. 
Getting back to my point, when we're reading the first few verses of Daniel, we're trying to understand, why is the king, when he comes to this country, when they, when, when they take the place over, why is he picking out some of these Israelites? Verse 4, uh, these, uh, these young people, these youths without blemish, good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom. I mean, this is kind of a weird move, isn't it? These are some smart young people. He's pushing uh, more education on them. He doesn't want to just make them servants. They've got to be trained. Doesn't this seem a bit excessive? Why teenagers? What's going on here? But it was all an attempt to indoctrinate the best they could find of these people, these Jewish people into Babylonian culture. Think about it. It's kind of a smart move from a, a, a leader standpoint. Don't we sometimes hear in a work environment, maybe from management, you know, it's nice when we get a young worker, some young people in here, not, not someone with decades of job experience already because we can train the guy the way we want him to do the work and I have to backpedal. I have to unlearn him. They might use a better word than unlearn. But, but it makes sense to break in the young blood yourself, right? This is basically what King Nebuchadnezzar is doing. Out of this nation Israel, out of these people that have been plundered, I want the youngest, I want the brightest, I want the best to serve me. Young enough to forget their old God, grow out of their old culture, so we can teach them the ways and the customs and the language of our own people, and they can serve us. We'll even rename these poor saps. Forced assimilation, what a beautifully uh, Babylonian idea, right? And yet, this very scenario of these young people in pagan captivity, this is all part of God's plan. This is all part of God's plan. That's what we want to hang on to here. God said Jerusalem's destruction in 586 BC was coming, and he even named Nebuchadnezzar as the king carrying it out. It's all part of God's will. Just look up Jeremiah 25, 9. Jeremiah 25, 9 to see that this Babylonian nation, what they're doing here, this is all part of God's plan. They're still under God here. He hasn't gone anywhere. The Lord was still in control. Wow. Maybe we wonder why the name changes here. This is kind of strange. Uh, you know, I mean, is this like secret agent man? You know, they've, they've given him a number and they've taken away his name. I just couldn't help myself. Look in Daniel chapter 1, verse 7 with me. Why in the world did Nebuchadnezzar go from Daniel to Belshazzar, Hananiah to Shadrach, Mishael to Meshach, and Azariah to Abednego? Please don't ask me to repeat that. Whew. Actually, Scripture says that the chief of the eunuchs gave them these names, but what was the purpose? The names of these guys directly connected them with the God of their people. So it's no coincidence the names they had when they got there, and it's no coincidence the names they were given. Daniel's name not only meant God is my judge, the suffix of his name, L-E-L, -E referred to Elohim, another of the names, of course, of Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God. We talked about that a little bit in, in uh, Ralph's uh, wonderful Sunday school class this morning. And the same with uh, Michelle, Hananiah, and Azariah carry the suffix ia or yah, the name for God I just mentioned. Now, once they're in Babylon, king gives them new names, new names after Babylonian gods, of course, thinking that Yahweh would be completely out of the picture. He wouldn't mean anything to these Jews in time, right? This influence would all go away. They were out of that uh, part of the world wasn't going to happen. But to quote Donald Trump debating Hillary Clinton, wrong, wrong. She's shaking her head. That one should have been cut. Daniel became Belshazzar, meaning Bell protects his life. 
This was a Babylonian god. Bel was a pagan god. Azariah became Abednego, meaning servant of Nebo, another pagan god. Why were the captive names so significant for the Babylonians? But again, the God of Israel himself was known for changing names too. Remember that? There is significance to a name. There's meaning to a name. This is why God changed Abram to Abraham, Genesis 17.5. Uh, Sarai to Sarah, Genesis 17.15. He changed Jacob's name to Israel, Genesis 32.28. What was the reason? To reflect God. To reflect God's name and God's will for their lives. Kind of neat. I've been told uh, Joshua uh, has this "God is my shepherd" meaning to it. Uh, so a name means something. There is beauty in a name. It might sound like a bit of an antiquated idea, but we sure sell a lot of baby books these days, don't we? And uh, let me ask you this: How many of you married ladies, when you got married, took your husband's last name? Bit of an aside. I found this this week. I thought this was interesting. The lawmakers of 9th century England uh, are actually responsible for this. Beyond the use of just a, quote, Christian name, there, there got to be an awful lot of people named Thomas, see? They had to separate them out somehow. So we have this practice today where we refer to someone's wife as Mrs. Rebecca Rood, and yes, she's regretted that before. Just, just the name change, though, not the marriage. Whew. Right? Would you like to come up for a minute? We're going to. But speaking of change, back to these four kids from Daniel. How was this going? How was this forced assimilation going for the king? Were these four teenagers from Judah just a step away from becoming Babylonian warriors through and through? Was this happening? Was the change coming? Were they wearing the Make Babylon Great Again caps? She said no on that one for sure. Not exactly. Not exactly. Let's take another read through our highlighted text for the chapter. Verses 8 through 17 say this again. It's behind me. Yes. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear the Lord, uh, excuse me, I fear my Lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azira, excuse me, again, don't ask me to read it 10 times fast. Verse 12, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. Now we're at verse 14. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. That's the end of our text. And talk about standing up for whom you believed in, right? 
Wow. Could you do that? Wow. Daniel remembered the God under which he still stood. He knew was still there. Hadn't gone anywhere. The captives have been offered food and drink fit for a king, at least a king in Babylon. And they said no. Why? Bring us vegetables, Daniel said in verses 12 and 13. Give us a week and a half eating just vegetables. See if we don't look better on vegetables than the other guys under the king that are eating what he's eating. Why would Daniel turn up his nose at the food fit for a Babylonian king? The first thing that pops into my head is obviously Babylonian rulers were the first to have the big golden paper crowns and double-decker bacon whoppers, right? <laughs> Makes sense. But no, our answer likely runs deeper than that. The Bible says in verse 8 that the food and the wine that the king uh, were eating and that the king wanted these servants to be eating would actually defile them. The Bible says, uses the word defile. It doesn't just write the food off as being unhealthy or against what was customary. The Bible doesn't say it, it's going to sicken them or necessarily weaken them. You know, there's a chance we're talking about pig meat being most famously on the do not eat list of Leviticus 11 for the Jewish people, but there's a more likely scenario for Daniel's request. The 19th century theologian John Gill, and I like this, supposes that just like the names of the Israelites who were changed, you know, from honoring the God of Israel, Daniel, to the gods of Babylon, Belshazzar, so was the food. It is likely it wasn't so much the food in and of itself that was the problem for these youths to eat. I mean, don't forget, a bunch of teenagers can eat all the junk food they want. It's not going to hurt them, right? I mean, that's one of the nice things about being a teenager. I can eat 12 bags of chips and not gain any weight. Parents, don't strangle me after the sermon, please. Verse 8, not to defile himself. It was what the Babylonians had done with the meat. The meat had likely been sacrificed to Babylonian idols. That's the significance here. But there's a stroke of genius on Daniel's part. He requests vegetables. So no matter what the king was eating, which was obviously not as good for the body as vegetables, these guys would be keeping the law of the Lord under the eyes of the Lord. And they'd also be taking care of themselves. It's a stroke of genius. You might say Daniel's choice here is food for thought. As we talked about during our uh, Daniel Plan Bible study, went to several of those weeks of that series. What a good idea it is to, is to eat what God produces, not what man engineers. Amen? But here's what I want you to hang on to here. Even more important than Daniel's choice of food nutritious as it was in contrast to whatever the king had, was the fact that what Daniel chose was undefiled. Daniel may have been a prisoner here, brand new place, new country, under some Babylonian nation. God was still God. And God blesses his decision to keep him God over him. Verse 17. Let's read verse 17 together. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. This is quite a story. What a, what a character we're shown here from Daniel. I mean, we don't know a lot about Daniel, really, but we know what kind of a person he is right away. 
But maybe we think, this is so foreign sounding. I mean, we just can't relate to this today. I mean, God's people refusing to defile themselves when, when placed against their will among pagans? We can't relate to that at all. What are we supposed to do with that now? But yet in this fallen world, isn't this exactly our situation? I think on this. We may not have to worry about our American foods on the sacrificial altar to Bell, but what do we have to avoid culturally that's an abomination to God? Anything? That's just okay with a large group of people? That is often justified by even the majority of people around you, but to put you at odds with God's country? Think about it. Consider the last time, for example, you heard something inappropriate from someone you know, received an inappropriate text on your phone, saw an inappropriate meme come your way on social media. Maybe it was a text in poor taste about somebody you know. Maybe it was a little bit of gossip about someone you know. How did you respond? Did you feed on it? Did you perpetuate that, which might be culturally accepted? Did you let it defile you? Think about it. Maybe someone sent a dirty joke your way. Maybe you connected to something explicit and adult in nature on TV or the internet. This can happen to Christians too, right? What did you do? What did you do there? Did you keep surfing? Did you turn off that movie? Did you let it defile you too? Have you ever been subject to something that was off color, tasteless, made a decision that it was, you know, this is a product of Babylon, not the kingdom of God. I can't be defiled by this. I don't want any part of this. I'm turning this off. Or do you look for those kinds of films, those kinds of websites, that kind of entertainment? I think sometimes we think in the church, this is no big deal. I can have my little fun. Ephesians 5, 4 says that any filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking are out of place, right? Let's not be defiled, but remember who's watching out for us, who's watching over us. Because this world is not our home. Just like Daniel. I'm not saying we're always going to think like Daniel. Maybe our first impulse, just being honest here, is to be like one of the other three young people in this story. You notice it doesn't say that Hananiah, Michelle, and as, and as I'm going I'm to jump over this. I'm going to call him A, Mr. A. These three resolved they wouldn't be defiled uh, uh, in verse 8. They didn't make that resolution, but Daniel did. Daniel did. They followed suit. So who are you going to be like when you're faced with something that might defile you? Because standing up for holiness has to start with somebody, right? Down here. God's people are reminded to make that call when they're in a foreign land. I recently overheard a conversation between a couple of our guys who attend our, our wonderful Saturday morning men's group. Um, they were actually uh, talking about conversation, things in the workplace. The subject of standing up for holiness actually came up. One of the guys mentioned his, his work environment was uh, full of coarse language. But he wouldn't go, he wouldn't go for it. He didn't want to hear it. As a coworker finished the, the punchline to a dirty joke before asking, you guys want to hear another one, the, the individual from our men's group said, no. No, I don't. But thank you. This makes an impression. It really does. Try it. This individual resolved at that time and that moment, no matter how socially difficult, no matter at odds with the culture it might make him, he's going to make it known he's not going to defile himself. Because what good is a faith? What good is our Christian witness if we aren't keeping it? 
Now, I know what some people might think about this. When we're out in Babylon, people are gonna say, preacher, that's not easy. This goes beyond some bad words. I can't tell certain people that I don't wanna be part of their party in this weekend. That's just what my buddies do. And I'll be the laughing stock of the whole gang if I tell them I have to get up early and go to church the next day. Then let them laugh. Let them laugh. Because here's the thing. It may not be 10 days later like Daniel, but maybe 10 years, you'll be able to look back and maybe do some laughing yourself when you compare your physical, your emotional, most importantly, your spiritual stature against those who spent an entire decade plus partying their brain cells down the tubes of Babylon. Ask yourself, who knows best? Who knows best? The creator of the universe on what's best or the local peanut gallery? Who knows best? Whose vocabulary, whose family's vocabulary is going to be more intelligent, more importantly, God-honoring because they chose not to defile themselves with the blasphemous and off-color language of the MA or R-rated film or most of what you'll find on the uncensored internet, the defiled or the undefiled. This is day-to-day stuff. Who was better off? The one who was choosy on the company of the world they kept, who didn't allow themselves to be surrounded by social influences, who would influence them for the negative, who would influence their speech for the derogatory? Or the one who said, well, everybody talks this way. Who is better off, the defiled or the undefiled? Who is better off, the one whose intimate relations with their spouse were blessed because they chose not to allow pornography and extramarital temptation to provide them with a double life that defiled them and sinned against their own body? I knew an individual who had been collecting uh, the uh, entire canon of the softcore Playboy magazine since 1957. You'd think he loved women because, boy, he sure thought he did. But I'd hate to tell you about the relationship he had with his wife. I mean, this is a no-brainer, right? It's a no-brainer. But it's not as easy when we get into these individual situations of this fallen world. Being faithful to God in this foreign world, it's not about being a bunch of legalistic party poopers. You know, we don't think we're better than everybody else because we never swear or hang out with the wrong people or watch the wrong kind of movies. We don't keep a checklist of what we don't do to try to impress people. But this morning I am saying, like Daniel, choose holiness before a foreign culture. Choose holiness because God is holy every time. Choose holiness, amen? And here's the thing about resolving that you're not going to defile yourself today, that you're going to do what's right, that you're going to stand up for the one who made you. You may not see this today, you may not see this next week, or even in this lifetime, but God will bless your choice to do the right thing. He will bless your choice to honor him. We're going to learn more about this as we continue in our text over the next few weeks. But this is really cool, the way God blesses Daniel. We actually see an immediate payoff in verse 17. Look there with me again. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And they were already a few wise people, but uh, God made them wiser. This was immediate. Verse 19 even goes so far as to say, if you've got your Bibles open there, and the king spoke with them, his servants, and among all of them, none was found like these four. None was found like these four. Was it because of them 
Or was it because of him? It's because of him. Verse 20 adds, he found them ten times better, these four, than all, basically all of Babylon, all of the magicians and enchanters that were all in his kingdom. So no matter what circumstance, no matter what temptation, no matter what your struggle is with yourself on the inside, on the outside, with someone here, remember where you came from and remember to whom you are returning. Because friends, one day this exile that we are all in will be over. It's going to end one of these days. Since this is, uh, I've been told there's a, there's what, a hockey game or something today later on? With some umpires and quarterbacks and pitchers and like, right? Super Bowl, that's it, okay. I haven't had a lot of conversations with the preacher about sports. Always wondered why. <laughs> but since this is Super Bowl Sunday, I'd like to close with a story I borrowed from one preacher about a football player, and maybe you know this story. This goes uh, way back to uh, last century, 1999. That was last century. Long time ago. Player's name was Eugene Robinson. You know the name Eugene Robinson? He was a safety for the Atlanta Falcons. I'm sure you're all big Falcons fans here. Eugene Robinson didn't only have an outstanding career in the NFL, but he was also known for standing up for his Christian faith. And many of his teammates respected Mr. Robinson for the high moral standards that he exemplified, both on and off the field. There was a Christian group, and they were called Athletes in Action, and they even bestowed upon Mr. Robinson what they called the Star Award for his, quote, high moral character. He was well known for it. The same afternoon this award was given, uh, Eugene, his wife, and their son were having family time around a hotel pool, and, and the hotel was where his team was staying, and boy, this looked like the perfect weekend for this great athlete. He professed faith in God. But just hours after this time around the pool, Eugene Robinson was arrested by the Miami police for soliciting a prostitute. The safety for the Atlanta Falcons spent the night before the Super Bowl in jail. Now he was released to play. To top off his choice to sin, the Falcons even lost the game. But I don't bring up this story as a sinner to point fingers at someone. But I'm borrowing this illustration as the source before me because 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells me in my Bible that no temptation has taken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful. Eugene Robinson, like Daniel, had a choice to either defile himself or to take a stand for the God of Israel. And guess what she chose? When faced with temptation, will we remember the same God is he under which we stand to? And it matters every time. In Daniel chapter 1, Daniel chose to remember Yahweh. We should note that in later chapters, Daniel will have to make decisions, which won't always result in his pleasing Babylon as well, but for now, he certainly made a big impression. This week, friends, I'd like to ask you to uh, go home and read chapter 2, uh, 
Uh, Lord willing, we'll, we'll talk through it next week. And remember, in the meantime, he hasn't gone anywhere, no matter what. And praise his name for that. That's a comfort. That's a safety. But there's also responsibility there. There's also responsibility that has to be taken. God will always be faithful to you, and that's a promise. But you have to always remain faithful to him, too. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, in this world, we are at a time in which we are faced every day with the worst of what Babylon has to offer. Lord, we know the day is coming when, when you are returning. And all of those who know you, all of those that have claimed your name, that have died and have been resurrected with you, who have that faith, we're going home too. Lord, help us to not get caught up. Lord, help us to remember that our time, our time in this world, no matter how difficult it may be, no matter how much our relationships may need, may need us to just stand back and let you be the victor. And no matter how much our, our temptations may, may require us to Remember that you've been there too and how you fought off the devil. Lord, I pray that we would always take a stand for you. Lord, we were, we were born in this place, unlike some folks that were placed in a different situation. We were born here. We were born into sin. Unfortunately, we're pretty good at it. But I praise you, O oh God, because I know that you are far greater a Savior. Help us, Lord, as we sang about earlier, to, to remember that blood. That blood that was shed for us. That blood that covers each of our sins. Help us to remember, Lord, that what we already have in you is all we need. Help us to remember that greater are you. No matter what the devil does, tries to do in our lives, tries to tempt us with, tries to uh, interrupt our service for you. Lord, he can't take you away from us. I thank you, Lord, that nothing, nothing can separate us from you. And I just pray that as we go from this place, we would let others see just how strong our faith can be. I thank you, Lord, for the church. I thank you for this body of believers we have where we can, we can be connected and we can, we can share our failures. We can grow in strength. I thank you for your word where, where we can draw knowledge can learn of your will for our lives. And Lord, I thank you for your spirit. 
your spirit that protects us, that convicts us, that speaks to us. Even as I pray these words, Lord, I know that the spirit is, is speaking for me. I pray for this church, for this congregation, for each, each person here today, Lord, no matter what they're going through, that they would remember your love. Guide us. Bring us closely to you. Bring us home. It is in that holy name of Jesus I pray these things. Amen. And again, I, I plead with you today and, and all those people that you may know when you go from this place and you, you go out into your day-to-day -day life. Pass that message on. Pass that message on that this is not their home either. This is just a temporary place. This is just an exile, and someday we're going to be a part of that new Jerusalem. We need Jesus. We need to know Jesus. We need the blood of Jesus covering each and every one of our sins. Remember to spread that word on. Take your Bibles home with you. Get Daniel uh, chapter 2 ready, and we'll talk through that next week. But if you have a public decision you need to make today, be baptized into Jesus to take that name Christ on for all of eternity. We invite you to do that as we stand and sing, Mighty to Save. There's only one that is.